If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be reading from there uh, in just a little bit. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about what we've been doing for the month of January. As we're uh, the last Sunday of January at Rocket Town, we're going to be talking about who we are as a church, who we believe the Lord is calling us to be, and where we believe He's calling us to go. Uh, but we're taking then the weeks leading up to that to stop and say, but as as individuals, who are you? Who are who are we? as the people who make up this church, as the people who are part of this community. And we've been digging deep. And I, I want to tell you that when we, when we started mapping out this, um, these four messages, um, I think I was talking with Dave Burden about this this morning, that we kind of looked at it and thought, you know, these are going to be an interesting four topics to discuss. But what's happening uh, as we're preparing is it's not like it's four separate topics. Dave described it as it's like we're digging down into this well of the soul and every week we're just putting a tarp over it and then coming back and pulling the tarp off and digging down even deeper. And I feel like that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, Last week we were talking about, you know, what drives your life? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What, what What is spurring you forward and talking about what you want most? What do you want most? And I put out this theory that that what you want most in life, what I want most in life, I'm already currently in the process of chasing. I'm after it. And so are you. The thing is, is that for many of us, we really don't know what that is. We haven't really articulated it. And yet, it's driving the direction of our lives. And it can be cloaked in all kinds of disguises like, like money and like sex and power, recognition, influence, independence. We went through kind of this litany of things. And we read about Jesus' encounter with this paralytic who used to spend time beside this pool in Jerusalem, the pools of Bethesda, where they believed that an angel would come and stir the water and the first person in would get the healing or the, or the, the blessing that it was that they were wanting and he would be there every day trying to get into the water and this was just kind of how he spent his days and Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be made well? And we talked about how complicated of a question that is because the blessing of being given the ability to walk was also at the same time taking away from this man life as he knew it. Do you want to be well was the question. And here last week I felt like you could have heard a pin drop as we were talking about this. That we were, that the Lord was meeting us in a, in a powerful way in, in thinking about how much we grow to love our maladies in our lives and find even a strange kind of comfort in the brokenness that we build into the daily routines of our lives. And we talked about how mercy can be a painful thing when it takes away life that we've learned to navigate. And yet it's at the same time a glorious thing. This week, we're digging into the topic of, we can put this a bunch of different ways, money, possessions, wealth, um, we could say materialism, although it's much larger than that, credentials, The question is, what do you possess and what possesses you is the question that we want to unpack this morning. What do you possess and what possesses you? Carly asked me earlier this week, do you you not like preaching on the topic of money or possessions? And it's funny because every time that I've had a sermon coming up that's had to do with money, that question comes up more than once. Are you just dreading that? And I think part of it is because, right, we have 
kind of stereotype images of preachers getting up and ask, you know, guilting people into giving money and, and things like that. Um, here's what I think. I think that there's a difference between guilting people into giving money, which is not what we're about, um, and talking about money and wealth and how we view what we possess. And I believe that it's a conversation that people, that's a conversation that people want to have because you all possess things. I possess things. You all lack things that you wish you possessed. I lack things that I wished I possessed. And we have this kind of running dialogue in our lives that if, if only A, then B. And there are these untested theories that we kind of live with that once this happens, then this other thing that I want so much will be possible or will happen. And yet, it's a sacred place to go because talking about possessions or wealth or money gets to something that lays way beneath just economics. It gets to the question of the, one of the deepest life-directing idols in any of our lives, and that is the idol of security, needing to be secure, needing to have life battened down so that we can say everything is going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Bumper stickers. Anybody have one of these? I-G-B-O-K. Have you seen these? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so you've seen these. I've seen them only in Nashville. Um, Igbok is what it says. What's that? And underneath in small print it says it's going to be okay. That's what, it's, that's what it says. And I see it and my heart sinks because I think, what if it's not? <laughs> what if it's not? You know, since... When, when have bumper stickers ever really come through? Uh, you know? But you see that and you think, but that's the question. How do I know it's going to be okay? How do, I, how do I know that I'm all right right now? That I'm, that I'm doing okay? That I'm holding things together? What am I trusting in? What are you trusting in? What do you lack? That if only you could have it, if you could just have this, then you'd believe that you'd be fine. These are questions that all of us are chasing after the answers to every day. We're we're doing it. We're doing it. And so I want to read a passage of Scripture from Mark 10 that is just... (laughs) The more time I've spent with this passage this week and the closer I've gotten to now, to to preaching on this passage... it's been a strange experience for the last couple of days of just thinking about this um, because there's, there's a tenderness about it that I feel uh, that we're going into something where I think the Lord is meeting us in some significant ways but this is an encounter that Jesus has with somebody that is, is really testing my own heart um, because I, I, I resonate so much and I'm finding that I resonate more than I thought I did uh, with this person that Jesus is talking to. So I'm going to read the text. It's Mark 10, 17 to 23, and then we're going to unpack it. Jesus was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. 
And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Lord, take us into this conversation. Take our hearts there. Give us courage to to hear what's happening in this exchange uh, and draw us closer to you. Uh, and deepen our understanding of your love for us. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. The man comes with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I had a Sunday school teacher when I was little. I went to a church um, that celebrated icons, and... uh, had a Sunday school teacher who gave me and the rest of our class a necklace. Uh, brown, I remember it was like a brown shoelace kind of string and there was this paper picture of a notable person from the New Testament who was not Jesus uh, kind of glued onto that string. And as she passed these out, she said, now, if you are wearing this, when you die, you will go to heaven. Guaranteed. I'm maybe, I don't know, 10 years old. Who doesn't want that, right? It's, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure I've had Sunday school teachers give me lots of things of an estimated worth of a shoestring with a piece of paper glued to it over the years. That's the one I remember because she was offering something more than tongue depressors with cotton balls glued to them, right? She was offering me eternal life in the form of a necklace and all I had to do was just wear it. And as I think about that, uh, my feelings are mixed. There's a mix of rage and empathy, I think. Rage that that is a wicked, wicked, wicked lie and a horrible thing to tell a kid. But also empathy because being honest, there's a part of me that wishes that that was how it worked, that it was just that way, you know, that you could just wear something and it would get you into heaven and it would just be that uncomplicated. Eternity is on our minds. We think about this, whether we know we're thinking about it or not, we think about the question, is this all there is, this life that we're living right now? At the Frist Museum right now, there's an exhibit of the Impressionists, which I haven't been to see yet, but that's kind of my favorite, uh, the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists, and it just is breathtaking to me to be in the room with a Van Gogh 
And yet there's also a part of me that says, this is the greatest art I've ever beheld, but I still look at it and think, are there others? Are there more? What is that about me that can behold glory like that and say, I, want to, I need to see more, I need to see more. There's something in me that longs for a deeper glory than that. This rich young ruler is coming with this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get it? Now, we don't know why this question is on his mind, but we know that it's a flawed question just in itself. It's a flawed question, right? Because what do you do to inherit anything? Inheritance doesn't really work that way, does it? I mean, I guess you could be the only guy who mows the elderly woman's lawn across the street and she then gives you her inheritance, maybe, and you could say that you motor lawn and that's why you got the inheritance but that's not really how inheritances work it's not that you do something and so then you're included in the will it's not what you do it's who you are that inheritance is connected to but he's coming to Jesus and he's saying good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life this is something he wants and we don't know why maybe maybe it's just he owns everything else and he thinks it's on my list and once I have this, I'm done. Or maybe he's afraid of the person he's becoming. You know? We, that can happen quick, can it? Are you afraid of the person you're becoming? When you think back of when you were more ideal, more of an idealist and thought that you were going to change the world and now you're looking at some of the directions you've gone and you fear, maybe I'm becoming the very type of person that I swore I would never become. Maybe that's what's going on when he asks this question. Maybe he just wants to be more spiritual. Maybe he's terrified about his eternal state. Maybe he lays, up, lays awake at night fearing that he's gonna die and go to hell. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on in his mind. We don't know, but he's driven, he's driven. He wants something. But in asking for what he wants, in the way that he asks it, and in the way that Jesus replies, Jesus reveals what has a hold of this man's heart. And I want to know, do you see yourself in him? Jesus takes this flawed question and he answers it initially on its own terms. You know, he doesn't say your question is messed up. He says, all right, if that's the way we're going to deal with this question, you know the law. Keep all the commandments. And he reminds him what the commandments are, right? And that's, have you kept them, you know? You haven't coveted, haven't lusted, haven't lied, haven't dishonored your father and mother in any way. You've had no other gods but him that you've worshiped in your heart. This young man says, I've kept them. I've kept them since the time I was a kid. To which we all say, come on, right? I mean, if it were me saying, oh, I grew up in the church, I've kept the commandments my whole life. You'd pity me, wouldn't you? You'd think, you are blind. You're just, you, ha you have such a small view of what it means to be a good kid that you've tricked yourself into thinking that you've accomplished it. But, but there's so much that this guy's missing, so much that he just doesn't, See, and yet Jesus responds to him in a way that this is the part that's just been sobering to me. 
is if your impression of the Lord is that when you mess up, he's looking to just barge right in and show you what a fool you've been. If that's your impression of the Lord, look at this text. Because Jesus looks at him after he says, the law, I've kept it. I've kept it since I was a kid. Give me something else. Jesus looks at him and it says he loved him. What's that about? What's that about? Because we know it's not that he looked at him and loved him and said, finally, somebody who's kept the law since they were a kid, I love this guy. That's not what he's doing. There's a sincerity in this man. He believes what he's saying, I think. He, he, he thinks that he has kept the law. He's giving himself all kinds of moral and spiritual credit. But then he calls Jesus good, which could be a very offensive thing to Jesus' ears. Because what did he just finish saying? He just finished saying, I'm good, and you're good. He put himself on the level with Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the law. He said, I've done that. He's just said, we're the same. We're both good. We're both good. Jesus calls him out on this and says, why do you call me good? But he's revealing that there's a problem in this man's understanding about his own heart, about how he's wired, about what makes him regard himself in the way that he is. And it isn't just that Jesus probably knows more about this man than this man knows about himself. It's that Jesus knows more about the human condition than this man. Jesus is walking the earth in that point in time because he understands something profoundly deep about the human condition, and that is that they must be redeemed and restored or they perish. That's why he's there. He's there because, as Romans 3.12 says, there is none who does what is right, no, not one. And that's why he was there, was to do that, was to live that life that I failed to live and that you failed to live, and then to die in my place. To what extent do you believe that you are blind to the truth of your own condition? I want to ask that question again. To what extent do you right now believe that you are blind to the extent, uh, to the truth of your own condition? What kind of credit do you think you're spotting yourself right now? How much? Do you think you're giving yourself a lot? Do you think that you're way too hard on yourself? Jesus looks at this man with love because he knows he's about to do something that he did with the paralytic at the pools of Bethesda. And that's that he's about to take something away by his mercy. He's about to take something away. And here's what he does. He says, okay, I see something in you that you lack. And what you lack is poverty. And so I want you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then I want you to follow me. You're not going to find in the New Testament a command from Jesus that everybody who follows him needs to sell everything that they have and give it to the poor and live in poverty. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not upholding a, well, this is what it means to follow me. That's not how it works. He's speaking specifically to this man's heart. And he's saying, I know what has you. You think you have everything, but it has you, and I'm about to show you. And so he says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And he takes away some innocence from this man. 
because he has great wealth. And immediately, he's in cost analysis. Can I afford to do what you've asked me to do? He doesn't even deal with the second part of Jesus' invitation to come follow him. Because Jesus has told him, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then let the remainder of your days be one where you're following me. You know, join with the disciples. We'll have meals together. We'll travel around together. We'll pray for people. There'll be healings. It'll be incredible. But the cost analysis part of his mind has him. It has him, and he can't. And so he goes away sad. The irony is that what Jesus is offering this man is incredible wealth on a spiritual level, on an eternal level. He's talking about being profoundly wealthy. But the man can't see. And there's this cost to following Jesus. And it's not as simple as, well, you have to be willing to sell things and give them to the poor. That would be easy. It's that you have to hold everything in your life with an open hand, knowing that this isn't mine. It's not mine. I don't possess anything. I don't own anything. Anything that is in my life, I'm a steward of. I was thinking about this text is referred to as the rich young ruler. Think about those three words. He's rich, he's young, and he has power. Rich young ruler. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. But he goes away sad because Jesus has caught his character in a trap. And what he leaves at the scene is telling he has too much and the price is too high. So he goes home sad because his wealth has him. What is the thing that the Lord could ask you to surrender that would leave you feeling that's not fair, that's not possible. I would guess that there's just a lot of, in this room, yeah, we deal with this about material things, sure. But I think probably for a lot of us here, it's not material stuff. It's recognition, it's success, it's being known and being liked for what we do. It's relationships that I am defined by the people I surround myself with in such a way that I will stop progress in my life in order to keep this thing intact in any way, shape, or form that I, that I can. These are sacred places to us. And when Jesus says, come follow me, leave that and come follow me, we're, ah, I can't afford that. I can't afford that. These are the things that possess us. These are the things that have you. These are the things that have me. There lies in this young man's heart roots of fear and insecurity and self-sufficiency and self-salvation and a need to control to the extent that he's really unable to imagine himself as a whole person without his stuff. He's not him anymore without it. 
do you hold the material things of this world with an open or a closed hand? Are you a steward of the things in your life or do they have you? Is the question that this story is just giving us. And this is a heart thing. This is a heart thing. It's not a bank account thing. It's not the size of a house thing. It's not any of that. It's, it's a heart thing. I want to close by leaving you with a thought, something to chew on this week. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes a life that is just filled with worry, worry, worry. Some of us, we're paralyzed with worry. It guides the course of our days. And he says, you consume with these questions. What are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? What are we gonna wear? Where are we gonna live? And what these questions are really asking, Jesus is saying, is, is who's gonna provide? And Jesus says, the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them. Here's the thought that I want to leave you with as you think about what possesses you and what you possess. You have only ever had one provider. You've only ever had one provider. And it's never been your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your work, your inheritance, your lottery ticket, your children's success, your ambition, your industry, your recognition. It's never been any of those things. Those have never been your provider. You've only ever had one real provider, and that has been your Father who is in heaven who knows what you need. You've only ever had one provider. That's never not been true. Double negative. Jesus goes on to talk like an artist. He talks like an artist all the time, but here's what he says. He sees the birds. You've seen the birds. God gives them what they need. And you've seen the flowers. And God clothes the earth with these things, and guess what? He still loves you more. You've only ever had one provider. Pray with me. Lord, it would be convenient and easy, I think, for us to think about wealth, possessions, material things through the simple lens of whether we're generous people or not with those things, Uh, whether we could ever be indicted of being stingy or too consumed with the stuff that we have to care about helping anybody else. But Lord, in this story, Um, it's about more. Uh, This conversation is about more than just what this man has. It's about how it has him and how it has his heart to the extent that he can't imagine himself as a person of any value without it. And Lord, we live in that. So many of us in so many ways live in that. And so Father, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who when we hear the call to follow you, that the worth of that far exceeds what it would cost us to lay down whatever it is that you cost us to lay down. Lord, would you help us to be people who are not spending our lives trying to figure out what the one thing is that you want us to give up, but that you would make us people who hold everything with an open hand and that we trust in you. You're the only provider we've ever had. 
You're the only provider we will ever have. Um, Bring us to repentance in those places where we think that we've provided for ourselves. Um, And cause our joy to be found in trusting in you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.